on three levels, work on a personal or ground level, as we call it. Uh, my wife and I have been involved in three different church plants uh, in France. We're back at the church plant that we actually interned in. That's kind of a reversal. Um, and so I serve there. I'm part of the preaching rotation. I'm the only foreigner uh, in the rotation, though our church has 18 different nationalities represented. Maybe my mic isn't as good. I'll bring it closer to me. So that's, we work on that personal uh, level to keep our hands in the work uh, so that when we talk about church planting, we're talking about uh, real life. We know what it's like. Uh, second level is I mentor a good number of people. I have about five to eight different leaders that I mentor and coach both locally. So they'd be French nationals as well as expats around the world. Uh, that takes a good portion of my time. And then third level is, as Tim said, I do travel a lot. I am the international director, so I'm responsible for all our teams working around the globe, ensuring that what we say we're doing, we're actually doing. Uh, so if you think that that's great, I get to jet set all over the world, uh, then you can come with me sometime and do that 22-hour flight from Melbourne, Australia, back to Paris. Uh, it's, it's not a pretty picture. Um, but uh, I do have that privilege to see a lot of things that people don't get to see uh, and see what God is doing in the world. And that's the amazing thing because for whatever you read in the newspaper or hear from other people, God is at work uh, in many ways that you could never even imagine. Um, so he is still on the throne and he is still building his church in ways that we can't even understand. So uh, this morning I want to talk to you about a passage uh, that uh, has a lot to say about our role in this bigger picture. It's in 2 Kings chapter 5, and you'll excuse me for using my, my smartphone, but uh, my Bible is sitting in France. It's one of the dangers of you know, packing your suitcase. So 2 Kings 5, and I'll be reading verses 1 to 19. You're probably very familiar with this story. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, but I want to draw out a few, at least three things I think apply to us here, York, Pennsylvania, uh, and our role in what God's doing. So, 2 Kings 5, starting with verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman went taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, 
the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of, the, of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And Elisha said to him, Go in peace. Here ends the reading of God's word. Now, I originate from Philadelphia. That's, you know, that way. And uh, I can put on the Philadelphia accent if that would help you. Uh, Tim probably knows a little bit of it, but I'm originally from there. But I decided to go to university in Ohio. That's like no man's land for us in Philadelphia. And I went to this university, and every year at this university, they would invite some major speaker or musical group. I mean, it was big. And uh, it was always preceded by a huge amount of advertising, publicity. You know, you've got to come and hear this person. Or you've got to come and hear this musical group. And I remember one year, I was a junior, and uh, there was a uh, potential U.S. Vice presidential candidate who came, well-known, well-known for his uh, work in civil rights, came to the campus, and to be honest, I remember he came, I can tell you his name, but I don't remember anything that he said. On the same campus was a retired missionary. I think he was close to 90. I'm pretty sure he was, he was in that category, somewhere up there in those later years. He had a studio apartment off campus. His door was always open, and the place was flooded with students from the university group. Every day, seemingly, people would go and drink in this guy's wisdom. He's a little guy. Now, 
I wonder many times if that little guy, 90 years old, former missionary, who never had any publicity or advertising, come and hear my, hear my speech, actually may have had more impact on people's lives than that U.S. President, vice presidential candidate who came, and I can't even remember what he said. Now, in this story, you're gonna, you're, most of us focus on one person. But actually, there are a lot of little people in this story who actually have a major impact on what happens. It's as if each moment in our lives is an opportunity for us to demonstrate who is at the center. And that decision actually has impact and influences the world around us. Little people, ordinary people, you and me, can have impact in the world around us. There's just three things I want to try and highlight for you. And you can, again, you can talk more with me, discuss with me, push back on me. Uh, See, in France, one of the things we do is we have this sort of dialogue that goes on. And we're allowed to do that because criticizing uh, a person is a sign of friendship. Try that one on precise. Okay, everything's going fine with your friend until you think he's a friend until suddenly he starts criticizing you. And you're like, what happened to that? You know, what, what's your problem? No, he's now exercising his friendship, right? Okay, so feel free to push back. doesn't bother me. Uh, that's part of how you learn and grow. But here's the three ideas. One is that God directs everything that goes on in this world. Second, we are part of his mission. We're part of what God is doing in this world. Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, you are. And third, every moment of every day, you need the peace that God offers. Now, let me just try to clear the, you know, the lay of the land here, level the playing field. This is a great story. If you are a reader like I am, I am a prolific reader. I'm sure Tim is. Other people, this is a great story. I mean, just, just this, the dialogue that goes on is this, you could put it in modern terms, it's amazing, you know, what happens. So just follow that as we go through. What, how the writer describes to you and tries to convey to you what's really going on and what is the message that God's trying to get to us. So, God directs everything. Verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. As I said, you and I, we think of this story and we say there's really only one actor. There's one protagonist and it's Naaman, right? I mean, look at it. Verse 1, the story begins with him. Verse 19 ends with a reference to him. So we're basically bracketing the story with this guy Naaman. And if you go to the Hebrew text, Naaman's name comes up in the story at least ten times. That's way more than Elisha, Gehazi, the king, or anybody else. And then the writer's going to really push on you because he wants you to know how important this guy is. Okay, so he tells you first of his rank. He's the chief commander. Second, he tells you his privileged position. He is the army general who stands in high favor. He's the the guy right next to the king giving him information about what to do in the next military battle. And finally, he tells you his prowess, his courage. 
By him, verse 1, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. One verse, and you get the picture. This guy moves in circles that you and I don't even understand. He is, he is way up in society and in this society run by a king. But then the author's going to bring Naaman all the way back down to our level when he ends by saying, but he was a leper. This mighty man of valor, the thing that set him off and set him apart from other people, now we see that he was like all of us. He had contracted a skin disease that would ultimately be fatal. All of us have a spiritual disease that will prove fatal. Something was eating away at Naaman like it's eating away at us. So is Naaman the main actor? That's the question. The story is bracketed with him at the beginning, at the end. But now look what happens. Look what the writer does. Verse 1, he says, Because by him, that is by Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Syria. So who was really the person behind all the victories on the battlefield for Naaman? It was not Naaman. It was God. Second, Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. That's more than a coincidence. I mean, first we want to let you know that God is behind all that's going on, the battlefield. Now in that one of those battles, they pick up this little girl and it's, it's a little girl, so we're talking somebody 10 to 13 years old, and she ends up working for Naaman's wife. Doesn't it sound like some other story you've read in the Bible? Like Joseph, who ends up in Potiphar's house, one of the rulers next to Pharaoh? Kind of interesting. It's not a coincidence. Third, verse 13. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is the great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Now, the story should have ended right there. Because who's in charge? Name is in charge. What is this group of small guys telling this general what he should do? But what happens? Naaman is turned away from a very bad decision by small people. God is at work throughout this whole book. He's at work throughout this whole story. It's him who is behind all this. But... Don't think that we're like kind of these passive observers, kind of robots. You know, Naaman is just going along trying to figure out which way he should turn or what he should do. No, Naaman had to act. The young servant girl had to choose to speak up. The servants had to decide whether they would go against the anger of Naaman. Naaman had to decide that he would follow the instructions of the young girl and the servant. Now, the story gets even better when you get to that second piece when Naaman goes to meet Elisha. Now think about it. Okay. You are, you know, the president of the United States and you show up at my front door and you need my help. And I send a message. I don't even come to the front door. Now, come on. I mean, wouldn't you be like majorly upset? I mean, you know, Naaman is, is the 
the commander. I mean, he's done all these military battles, won all this stuff. He's next to the king. Elisha doesn't even come to the front door. He was, you know, as my mother would say, that got his Irish up. He was super mad. So it shows that something was going on in Naaman's heart. Then Naaman, and he comes, now he comes to Elisha with all the diplomatic protocol. I mean, to you and me, this stuff about shekels and changes of clothing and all that means nothing. But basically, this guy came with like three truckloads of gold. So he, he, he knew what he was doing. He was working all the things that needed to be done in order to get what he wanted, which was to be healed. That's why when you come to the end of this story and Naaman gets through all this and then he says, that's it, I'm out of here, I'm going home. I mean, aren't the rivers of Arbana and Farpar on equal par with this river? And then his servants turn him away. They move him in another direction. God is at work trying to expose that deep root of pride within Naaman's heart. He wants to show him that he can do what he thought no one could do. Naaman had a plan, but God had another plan. So what about you and me? See, God knows the reason for each event in your life. He knows why you are stuck in the wrong line at Giant. Maybe that doesn't happen to you. I always pick the wrong line. My wife always comments on it, whether it's at the toll booth or I don't have the easy pass, okay? So whether it's at the toll booth or whether that's Giant or whether that's Walmart, wherever it is, I always pick the wrong line. It sounds funny, but God knows why he put you there. Maybe to talk to the person in front of you or behind you, maybe because of some other thing. God knows why you are here in York, Pennsylvania and not in Amsterdam, Holland. God knows why I am sitting in Paris, France and not back in my home country. God knows why you're having trouble having handling money and balancing your budget at the end of the month. He knows that. He knows all the events. The problem is that our behavior never represents that truth. We say that. We give, we, we'll, we'll vocalize that and say we believe that God directs everything, but our behavior says otherwise. Just think about when you're at a traffic light. Okay, Again, maybe this never happens to you. Okay, Maybe I'm the only one. But I'm sitting at a traffic light. I'm about four cars deep. And that light changes from red to green. And the guy at the front or the gal at the front doesn't move. Has that ever happened to you? And you're sitting back there saying, yo, mate, get going. I'm not going to make it through this light. You know, you're sort of talking out loud. That may not happen to you. But so I'm talking out loud to that car, three cars ahead of me. And what happens? Oh, they finally wake up. They go through the light. The next car goes through light. And the third car goes through while it's yellow. And you end up stopping. See, I say that God directs every event in my life. But right now, that is not the case. Because my behavior is demonstrating something else. Doesn't God want each event to serve in some way to help us answer the question, search my heart, O oh God, and know if there are any hurtful ways. Push me back to Calvary because I know that there's stuff going on that I'm not aware of. So if God directs every event, 
then when we get an event that we don't like, he, he's pushing on something. He's wanting to help us understand something. That's what's happening with Naaman. So God directs, now we're part of his mission. One day, verse 3, this little girl said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Now the narrative is going to pick up, begin to pick up speed here. You get verse 1, a lot of detail. Verse 2, now all of a sudden, verse 3, things start going because ordinary people are going to show themselves more wise and discerning than those who live in the halls of the mighty. A valiant warrior is unable to find a cure to his leprosy. But the words of a servant girl make him run. Do you, do you see that? See how the writer puts it? She says, oh, that my master were with the prophet in Israel. He would heal of epilepsy. Next thing, he's going, Naaman is going to the king and saying, thus and so, don't you like the way the writer puts it? Thus and so spoke this girl. King says, go, I'll send a letter. It's incredible. I mean, this girl had no right to speak up in her society. She was a nobody. In fact, not only should, could she have lost her job, she could have lost her head for doing what she did. Then, verse 13, a mighty warrior is on the verge of running away from his redemption and his healing. He's going to do a U-turn. But his servants say, my father, that's a greeting of respect, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Here we go again. We read that story and think, ah, oh, this sounds a great thing. A couple of guys you know, come alongside me and say, yeah, I'm not sure you want to do that. These are servants. Servants were not allowed to speak. They were not allowed to contradict their master. They were not allowed to say things that their master was supposed to do. They risked, again, not only their situation and employment, but they risked their lives. So in both cases, ordinary people demonstrated they had more wisdom and discernment than the king of Syria and Naaman. Now, something else must have been going on under all this. A servant girl is not going to speak like that, nor servants, if they're not motivated by another reason. And the writer tells us again and again that these people did something. They acted based on their belief that there was a God who was greater than all the other gods. These little people raised their eyes just a little bit, gazed out on the horizon, and said, God is doing something. How can I? What's my place? What do I do? How do I stand? What do I say? See, now there's that little verse where it says, one day... This servant girl said, now that one day is actually not in the Hebrew text. But a lot of modern translations put that word in to kind of help you understand that this was such a unique opportunity that this girl seized it. And that one day she decided to say something. She chose an appropriate moment to act. So despite their seeming insignificance, each one of these people felt that their actions could have some kind of impact in the world around them. Now, just contrast that with the king of Israel. I left him out for the minute, but remember, he gets this letter. Okay, you know, I'm sending this person to you so you can cure him of his leprosy. You know, I mean, 
guy tears his, his robes as a sign of you know, distress and grief and then says, this guy is trying to pick a fight with me. It's obvious. He can't see farther than the, the end of his nose as to what's going on in the world. But yet these small people saw the bigger picture and acted. He acted out of jealousy, out of anger. These little people acted out of a motivation saying, God is at work. God is doing something, and I can join it. Now, how many times have you and I hesitated from saying something or adding something to a conversation? You know, we say, well, we talk ourselves out of it. You know, I don't, I'm sure you should say that. You know, it's not, maybe not the right thing. Now, yes, there are many times we need to listen more than speak. But there are many times when God puts a word on our heart that we need to share with someone else and we know that he has a larger perspective. He's doing something greater in this world. My neighbor, 18 years, never had a relationship with him. He was the meanest guy on our street. He had quadruple bypass surgery. He almost died. My wife said, you need to go and visit him. So I went and visited him. I have no, absolutely no relationship with this guy. As I'm walking into the room, you know, I felt like God impressed on me the fact that I'm the only guy that's going to visit this fellow. Because nobody on our street liked him. Everybody hated him. He was always mean, always barking, always yelling. So I went in, and I figured, in France, you never go for the jugular when you first meet somebody. You don't say, you need God. That just, maybe that's going to happen here, but in France, you don't do that. But I felt like, if I'm the only guy that's going to come visit him, I felt the Lord wanted me to say something. So I walked in, a little chit-chat. I looked at him, and I said, you know, jean Marc. God gave you a second chance. That's what he said. That's all I said. No, no major gospel message. He said, he looked at me and he said, is this a guy I don't have a relationship with? He said, yeah, I know. He said, David, I'll tell you this. He said, when I opened my eyes after I was, after they finished operating me on me and I, and I saw that I was still alive, I knew that I had been born again. He doesn't know what that word means, Okay. But that's what he said. One statement. All I said was, God gave you a second chance. And God opened a door. So I say, these little people, they seized a moment, an opportunity, and they said something. Not really that important, maybe in the great scheme of things, but yet God used it to have impact on the life of Neiman. So, here's the final thing. Every moment of our life, We need his peace. So Naaman returned to the man of God, verse 15, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. What a reversal. There's a guy who comes into any room and everybody's just fawning over him. And now he goes the other way and now he's exuding praise to our God. He goes back to Elisha and he says, what can I do? All of our life is about praise and worship. But it all begins with praise and adoration because we were lost. We were people who were condemned and someone came alongside and helped us. Someone took us out of the place where we were. The physical sickness that Naaman had was healed, but now his spiritual sickness is going to be worked on. That's what we call in Christian jargon sanctification. 
And now you watch the story as it moves along. He goes to Elisha. He starts asking him questions. And then he gets to this issue of he's going to go back to his home passport country. And he has to be beside the king and go into this temple when the king is going to worship and bow down before this other god. What should he do? Now, the interesting piece, and I don't have time to open this one up, but is that name is that Elisha doesn't give him an answer. He doesn't say you need to do this. Elisha keeps pushing him that you're going to find your answer in God. You need to find out what God wants you to do in this situation. We can trust that God will be faithful to his word. And when he says, you shall have no other gods before me, Naaman needs to figure that out for himself. And what that means in his world. It's no different from our journey of faith. I mean, each of us moves along in this journey in different ways and at different speeds. But there is one God who's working in our heart. And when Naaman finishes... Elisha lets him go with this benediction. Go in peace. Now, please, this is not American jargon. This is not French jargon to say, have a good day. Blessing. You know, may the Lord be with you. No. This was a benediction. This was a blessing. Uh, I come from a liturgical background where the pastor at the end of the service would raise his hands in a symbol of the ironic blessing where he would, you know, almost communicate to you the blessing of God. That's what this is. That's what's going on here. This is the, the fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham that I will bless all peoples in this world. You realize Naaman is a pagan. He is not a Jew. He is not an Israelite. We're still in the Old Testament. And God moves to bring this man to himself. It's incredible. God is setting you up for the rest of the story of the Bible. And when it says go in peace, he's going to go way down the history line to the one and only, we just sang it, okay, that God is our peace. It's not that God is my peace because I feel good inside. No, it's God reconciled me to himself. He brought a a broken relationship back to restoration. And I can have fellowship with the God of this world. It's incredible. It's amazing. And if I know that, then that peace allows me to see everything that goes on in my life as an opportunity to witness for him. If I'm sure of that peace, then it allows me to see everything as another step in my growth in my journey with Christ. If that is true, then it gives me the tools to reconcile myself to others, to deal with the conflict that I have with others. And that peace will give you the courage to speak up to others. It's not easy to share your faith. That's because you need to depend on God. You're not a salesperson. You're an ambassador. You need the the person who is in charge, God, the Almighty, to give you the words that you need. Ordinary people end up saving important people. And remember, he gave us peace. He is our peace. The one who was wounded for our transgressions, was bruised for our iniquities, frees us to be what we could never be on our own. Let's see, small people, ordinary people like you and me, we can have impact. 
And don't kid yourself whether you're 10 years old or 90 years old. You can have impact in this world. If God is at work and you are sensitive to what he's doing in and through you. Now, this name will mean nothing to anyone in this room except two people. In our first church where we were, there was a man named Gordon. Now, Gordon was a little person. He was an ordinary member of our church, and I don't think he ever completed, I'm pretty sure, he never completed secondary school, never completed high school. He was a furniture or cabinet maker, and was so for most of his life. The most important thing you need to know about Gordon is he never went to Bible college or seminary. Never. But he knew his Bible. In our church, where we where I first served, uh, we had people like Gordon, small, ordinary people. We also had what we called high flyers. These were businessmen, presidents of their construction companies, vice presidents, uh, car dealership uh, owners, etc. That whole group, okay, came to us out of Alcoholics Anonymous. They were all people who had struggled with alcohol and then come to Christ and ended up coming to our church. And this is a pretty powerful group. I mean, you know, you wouldn't, if you looked at them, you wouldn't know that they'd been alcoholics. You just saw them as these real high flyers, people that made tons of money. And one day, the group came to me. I was the associate pastor, and they came to me and they said, David, we, we would like to be discipled. So, you know, I'm the associate pastor. I'm thinking, okay, I know who they're going to ask. Right, Tim, wouldn't you think? I mean, they're going to ask me, right? I mean, gosh, I, I'm, I went to Westminster, you know. So I said, so I, you know, graciously gave them the opportunity to answer the question. And I said, so, you know, who would you like to disciple you? And uh, they said, Gordon. Now, I, I don't know if they ever saw the look of shock on my face or whether they recognized that. But it's the follow-up question that really, that really got me. I said, why Gordon? And I'll never forget their answer. It's just engraved on my memory. The head guy of this whole group looked at me and he said, because when Gordon prays, we know he knows the Lord. Uh, that just about blew me out of the room. This was an ordinary guy, a small person, never finished high school, never went to Bible college or seminary. But it is true that when he prayed, you knew he knew the Lord. It was, he could pray a powerful prayer. I mean, powerful in the sense it touched you deeply. That's who they wanted. That's why I say, you may think that because some of us have degrees that we're more capable than you. I'm sorry. There are people, that group of people were ministered more by Gordon than they ever were by me. That was his role. That was his part in God's big picture. Now, I said, the key is, I can tell you that, but if you don't draw on the resource that God is your peace, he is your foundation every day, you can't do this. And I'll close with this. Some of you know different catechisms. I use this a lot in France because the French know only one catechism, and that's the Catholic catechism. And when I, when I bring out any of the other catechisms of, of our history, it just, they're just 
they're stunned because it's just so fresh to them. So maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't, but there's Westminster Confession, Westminster Catechism, there's also Heidelberg. I really like Heidelberg Catechism and, and because their, their answers are so full. So forgive me if I stumbled on this because I know it in French, not in English. So there you go. Okay, first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Remember, catechisms are a question and answer. Someone gives you the question, you're supposed to respond with the answer. Okay, so here's the question. What is your only hope in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Wow. That's a mouthful. But all it's trying to say is, without knowing that Jesus is at the center every day, you can't do this. You can't live this Christian life. You need to know that he is the one from beginning to end who's directing your life. And because he is, he makes you part of his larger mission. Let us pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you love us and care for us in ways that we could never imagine. And you did it by sending Jesus. And you, as we celebrate today, his entrance into Jerusalem, when he began that journey which led to his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, we know that it all was for our good. He, above all things, he sought to bring us to himself, and he gave his own life in order to make that happen. Lord, may may that truth fill our hearts each day this week so that we would be ready and willing to speak that word, to perform that act of goodness that will help others to see you, to come to know you. And Lord, we give you the praise in his name and for his glory. Amen.